If you were to ask most people their favorite room in the house, I think that most people would say that it's the kitchen. Have you noticed how people tend to gravitate towards the kitchen? If there's a place to kind of stand around and hang around, it tends to be in the kitchen. The kitchen is uh, a favorite place in the home. And we could ask the question, why is it so popular? Why does it get so much attention and visitation? Why can a nice kitchen sell a buyer on the entire house? And of course, the answer we all know is because the kitchen represents the place where our most basic needs are met, namely for food and for water. It's the plain fact, if we don't eat, we die. And uh, in addition to it simply being uh, where we have our basic needs met, it also is where we have some of the most savory delights to be had in the human experience. It is in the kitchen that we enjoy roast beef dinners. It is in the kitchen that we enjoy buttered croissants. It's in the kitchen that we can enjoy fresh waffles with butter and maple syrup on top. It is in the kitchen where often uh, banana splits uh, are produced and are savored and are enjoyed. And so the kitchen is not simply a place where we have our basic needs met. It is also a place where we have our aesthetic needs met and our savory delights that we enjoy there. Uh, so the kitchen is a very popular place, and it is a very important place in any home. In fact, you could say, well, is, is, you know, is the kitchen the only place where uh, we are nourished? No, we, get, we, get, we can get nourishment in, in other places. But would you want to have a house without a kitchen? Now, you may not know this, but when the church called me to come here as the, as the pastor, I actually lived in a basement little apartment that did not have a kitchen. And so I can tell you, having lived without a kitchen and living with a kitchen and now with a wife in that kitchen, <laughs> it is to be much preferred. The kitchen is a wonderful place. So our teaching series is bringing us now to uh, the role of the Word of God in the life of uh, the church. And the kind of church that we want here at Bethel Church, the kind of church and the kind of priority that we want to place upon the proclamation and the application of God's Word. Now, we've been using this metaphor of a house, and we looked at the foundation of the house, which is Jesus Christ. It is all about Him. Uh, we look, went into the living room, uh, and that living room is worship. All of life is now to be lived to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Uh, last weekend, we went into the family room, the place of fellowship, a place of horizontal relationships, a place where we live out community with one another in a spirit of love and unity. And today, we walk into uh, the kitchen, again, where the primary nourishment of the church is. And I, I say primary because all of the rooms of the house are spiritually uplifting and sanctifying. 
Uh, we would never want to say that fellowship is not a critical part of growing as a Christian or that somehow worship is not uh, nourishing to the Christian's life. So every room in the, in the house of the church is uplifting, is edifying, and is sanctifying. However, God has so ordained our spiritual lives and the life of the community of faith where it is the proclamation of God's word and the application of that proclamation by the Holy Spirit and by willing listeners within the congregation that he primarily uses to help us know who he is and to know what he expects, to know the way of salvation and how to live a life that is glorifying to him. And it is exactly what we are doing right now. When the word of God is opened, as the song just sang, Speak, O Lord, that we may hear from you. That indeed is what we want. There is something unique that God does amongst God's people when God's word is opened and is proclaimed. I have in the past used this analogy that when the, God's word is opened within the congregation, it is literally as if God is speaking to us. And God's words are way more important than man's words. It is the most important word, what God has to say. And we're going to get into that uh, today. So that's the main point. Uh, as goes the pulpit, so goes the church. You can do a lot of things to have life in a church, but there is nothing that, in, in, that provides that kind of life and nourishment than the accurate and the passionate proclamation of God's word to God's people. And we want to do that indeed even as we talk about what preaching is. So the way I want to tackle this is to put before us a model, an example of uh, this kind of role, and it is from Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. As you turn there, Nehemiah 8 comes on the heels of several chapters which have told the really amazing story of how uh, these uh, Jews in Jerusalem, this is after uh, the Babylonians have wiped them out, uh, have been restored to Jerusalem, have banded together to do an amazing construction project uh, in a very short amount of time. They rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem under the leadership of Nehemiah and uh, facing tremendous opposition from the people around them. And so they, ha they complete this project and the, the wall is restored, but what has not yet happened is the restoration of the people. You know, walls don't make a city, people make a city. And these, these people needed to be restored, not in terms of construction, but spiritually. And that is what now happens in Nehemiah 8. I begin reading in verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square... Before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. On the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. 
And beside him, and there's a long list of names there, I'll spare you, you can see the others that were near him. Verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. So here we have this remarkable moment in Israel's story, and they are reading from the book of the law, and the reading of the book of the law has a tremendous effect. We don't have time today to get into it. You can scan ahead and see that the effect of this reading and the explanation of it produces within the congregation a tremendous sense of sin, confession of sin, There is suddenly a great awareness of the needs of the people around them. They are told by the leaders that they should go and celebrate, which they do. So you have this amazing uh, effect that comes from the simple reading and explanation of the law of God. Now what we're going to do today is we're going to get into how this happened and why it happened, and we're going to look at it from the perspective of a kitchen. And this is very familiar, I think, to us. Most people understand what's in a kitchen and what happens in a kitchen. And so everyone's going to be able to follow what I'm I'm talking about today. We begin with the food in the kitchen. And we have now in this metaphor, the food clearly is the Word of God. Notice verse 1. It sets the table, if you will. It says, the people gathered as one man. So they are there for one purpose. They've gathered together. They know what they're doing. There they are. Why are they there, it says. And they told Ezra, notice carefully, they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses. Did you hear that? It is the people who gather, and they want to hear what God has to say. Now, that's a far cry from what happens oftentimes in churches where it's the, it's the pastor or the minister or somebody says, now you people, you need to hear what God's word has to say. And the people are like, oh, okay, well, I guess he's probably okay. How long is this going to go exactly? Because we've got things that we want to get to. We're people in a hurry. So hurry up, do your thing, and we'll be on our way. That's not at all what you see here. There is a heightened sense of expectation They want to hear what God has to say, and they tell Ezra, hey, Ezra, go get that book, and you come and you read it. We want to know what you have to say. Now, the book of the law that is being referred to here would have been uh, the law as God gave uh, Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai. And it doesn't tell us exactly where they were reading. It could, it could have been Leviticus. Maybe it was Deuteronomy, that second telling that Moses gave to Israel. Uh, regardless, they read. And they read for a long time. Israel cared what God said. And we see in this a reverence for Scripture. How do we see that? Notice, first of all, The people are eager to hear it. They all gather for this one purpose. Somehow word went out, hey, they're going to be reading the law of God. Everybody come. How many people would show up for that sort of thing? To hear the reading of the law. Secondly, it says that they are the ones who call for the book to be read. They want to hear it. Thirdly, it says, when the book was opened, the people stood. Now, why do you suppose they stood? I believe it is because they had witnessed in the building of the wall 
how wonderfully God had fought for them, enabled them, and produced now this tremendous thing that even all these years later, we read the book of Nehemiah, it's amazing what God, how God worked on their behalf. They knew that God had done it. They knew that. And it produced a sense of the greatness of God. And when there was a sense of the greatness of God, now God's word is also held in high regard. And so they stood, I believe, out of reverence for the word of God. Now you say, well, that's, that's very nice. Uh, they, they stood. I've been in churches. In fact, some times here at Bethel Church, we'll stand for the reading of God's word. I like it a lot. Thank you. As long as it's a short passage, I'm fine with it. Notice that it says that they began in the morning and they continued the reading and the standing until midday. This is hours of reading and standing. I would say about hour two, the only people that are standing are the ones who still hold it in reverence, and yet that's the sense of it, isn't it? This is the word of God. They had, if you will, a high view of the word of God, and those two things always go together. When there's a high view of who God is, now we have a high view of God's word. And maybe we can ask the question, how high is the word of God here in the estimation of the people of the Bethelonians? How much do we reverence what God has to say? I remember years ago when I was a teenager, not too many years ago, a few, uh, years ago when I was a teenager, I remember uh, we went on a um, school trip to Washington, D.C., and so we're there, it was my first time there, so excited, of course, see the White House, see the uh, Washington Monument and, and, and these things. Well, one of the places that we went was we went to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And uh, so here we are, giggly teenagers, uh, going to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And there were a few in our group who I would say were a little uh, more giggly, in fact, too giggly, and there we are, and, 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 and we're standing there, and there's, if you've never been there, it's a very cool setting because you have this large tomb, kind of a stone tomb, and there's a 24-hour guard at the tomb. And the guys they pick, I think, are the, you know, the biggest, baddest, strongest-looking guys in the entire army, I think, because they, they're standing there at, at very firm attention, they're holding a weapon, and... Uh, they all look like they could just, you know, kill you by blinking at you, you know, that kind of look. They're just like this stone. So we're, there we are, and I, I'm not even sure if it was some people in our group. You'll be happy to know it wasn't me. Uh, but uh, there was some laughter and some giggling and some, you know, teenager kind of things that were going on with the crowd that was right there. And uh, I, I, I will probably never forget it because all of a sudden the soldier that was there began, he, he, he glided. I don't know how they do that. They kind of do this little walk like this. And it was like he was floating on air. And I watched him as he went like, the, like this and he turned like this and he came right up to the crowd and he stood there, weapon in hand, and he goes, it is required that you be quiet at the tomb of the unknown soldier. You know, that kind of like that. I'm here to tell you, it got quiet quick. And suddenly, the reverence of that place was brought to bear upon even the immature that were there in the group. And there was a solemnity to it because we realized, you know what this stands for? 
And that's the sense, I think, of this spot. If we could go back in time, we might be struck by how serious these people took the hearing of the Word of God. There was a reverence to it. They stood all morning and listened intently. They wanted to know what God had to say. Isaiah 66, 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So as we think about the food in the kitchen, the food is the word of God. And the question I think that we need to ask ourselves is, how serious are we about the word of God? How highly do we reverence what God has to say? This book, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, do we believe that when it speaks to us, it truly is God speaking to us? And do we have a view of God where what he says matters to us? To the extent that we want to hear it, learn it, apply it, savor it like food to my heart and to my soul. To say, speak, O Lord, that we may hear from you. That is what is happening whenever God's word is opened within the congregation and it is proclaimed and taught. It is truly God speaking. It's not me speaking or whoever else may be teaching or preaching. Man's words don't matter. It is God's words that matter. And the reason what is happening even right now matters here is because it is God's word that is being taught and applied. And a biblical church will hold that holy moment holy. Do we? And do you? Does this matter? Can you imagine the chant that day at the water gate? Bring out the book. Bring out the book. We want to hear. Can you imagine around here, service is going on, and it's going on, it's going on, and nobody's, nobody's opening the book. Who would begin the chant here at Bethel Church? We want the word. Bring out the preacher. Bring out the book. I'd like to think that would happen. Why? Because we want that. We want that. We want to hear from God. So the food in the kitchen is the word. Let's talk about serving the food. Serving the food, which is the sermon, and I add, whenever scripture is taught. Now I add that because the word is not simply powerful and authoritative in this moment here or from a pulpit or in a church service. It is always authoritative. It is always powerful. It is always inspired. It it is always able to fully equip the man of God, 2 Timothy 3.16. So that is true in my personal study. That is true when I am listening to a sermon on a podcast. That is true in the children's ministries of our church. That is true on a Thursday night in in our youth ministries. Every time God's word is opened, it is powerful and effective. It is always food. So not just the sermon, but it must be at least the sermon in the church. 
Now, I'd like you to imagine the scene with me, okay? Imagine the scene. Here you have in the background, you've got that wall that they just built. It's gleaming, it's fresh, it's brand new. They're so excited about it. It represents protection from the enemy. It represents restoration of Jerusalem. It represents, to a certain degree, the, the, the fulfillment of God's promise uh, that he would restore his people. All of that is there. They urge Ezra to read God's word. So out comes Ezra. We don't know how old he was, I don't think. We call comes Ezra, the old man carrying the, the big book. It's in a big scroll. And he gets there and he opens it and he begins to read it. Problem, it's in Hebrew. The people that have been living in Babylon, they, they speak Aramaic. And it's been long enough now that that language is not as well uh, understood. So as he begins to read the book of the law, there are many people there going, What's he saying? I don't, do you get that? I, oh, every other word or so I'm kind of getting, although I can't, I'm having to kind of translate and then I don't know what it means. And so what are we going to do? Well, notice what happened, verse seven. The Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So here we have then, Ezra is doing the reading. Throughout that mass of people, there are Levites that are scattered around the crowd. And as Ezra read, these Levites then translated and explained what the law was saying. They gave the sense of it, the text says. They knew the law. And they knew the people. Now the word there that, it, that, ha, that you see there where it says give the sense, it literally means this. It means to separate. Okay? It means to separate. I remember when I was in college, I had to get a lesson on doing laundry before I went to college. That's pathetic, isn't it? So I got my lesson, and I went to college, and, and you had to pay to do your laundry in college, like quarters, and the thing, and then the, you know, it would go. And I remember uh, that my, my mom taught me, you put, do the whites, and then, and, then, and then you do the colors, and then maybe there's another category, I don't know. But uh, you would separate the whites and separate the colors, and then you would do a couple loads. But what well, didn't take me very long to realize that that meant twice as much money to do the laundry as needed, because you can do everything in cold and save at least a dollar uh, in doing the wash. And so I just started to just, you know, I just jam it all in there and close it and do the wash and... And that's what everybody else in the guy's dorm did too. Um, but what happened then is that uh, when I would get the clothes out of the dryer, now I had to separate them, right? Or if you do laundry properly, you're, you should do it beforehand. Here, up the whites, this is the whites. You ever do that with your laundry? Whites, colors, whites, colors, whites, colors. You separate them, right? That's the sense of this word. It is to separate things and organize things for the sake of understanding things. The Levites took the law of God and they were giving the sense of it by explaining and organizing it in a way that the people could understand it. Now this is a pretty good definition of a biblical sermon. It is to make the word of God clear, to give the sense of the meaning. Now here at Bethel, we call this exposition. Say that word with me. One more time. Exposition. All right. 
Thank you, Cedar Lake, uh, for participating. Uh, exposition. It's a word I would like everybody to be very familiar with because we talk about expository preaching. Now, what does exposition mean? If you look at that word, and I think we have it broken down on the screen here, ex is the word for out from, and posit, you see that word like position or meaning. So you put those two together, it means this. It means a sermon or a teaching that draws the meaning of the sermon out from the text. It begins with the text of God's word, draws the meaning out through explanation, and then seeks to apply it to the congregation. It begins with the word of God. It explains the meaning of the text. It applies the historical meaning of the text to the contemporary day. Expository preaching. You might, uh, to use our analogy, it takes the flour, and it takes the sugar, and it takes the carrots, and it takes the eggs, and whatever else is in the, the ingredients of a, of, a, of a meal, and it arranges them in such a way that it is edible, it is edible to the congregation. If you came over to my house for dinner, and I had, a, I had my... Uh, meat and potatoes and lemon meringue pie and uh, uh, hors d'oeuvres of some kind, shrimp cocktail, and, and maybe we you know, threw in a little bit of uh, that banana split that I mentioned earlier and all that. And I say, you know what? We just decided to save time and we would just mix it all together. Here you go. You'd be like, I don't like that. I like it separated and kind of in an order. It sort of goes down better, right? A sermon is similar to that. It is seeking to explain the word of God in a way that is edible, that is palatable, that is understandable, and ultimately is applicable in the day-to-day -day of life. Expository, preaching, and teaching. Now, some people confuse expository preaching with going verse by verse through a passage. If you ask many people what's expository, it means when you go verse by verse through a passage. That is often true, but not necessarily. It is a broader meaning. Let me give you a definition. Expository preaching is not so much a method as it is a mindset. A minister who sees himself as an expositor knows that he is not the master of the word, but its servant. Okay? So, is the Bible over me, or am I over the Bible? This is expository preaching. This is a man who tells really good stories, an orator. And we want here, we want this, where the preacher is under the word. Here's a uh, part of my definition. Expository preaching makes much of God and Christ as the organizing themes of the whole of Scripture and beginning with the text of Scripture declares God's glory and greatness over and into every aspect of society, culture, and the church. It begins with the text and then it moves to the application. In fact, I remember some years ago, uh, some, I had somebody come up to me and say, you know what? I, you spend all that time in the text, and then you get to the application. I really like the application. Why don't you just do the application and skip the other stuff? And I was like, wait a second. It is the other stuff that is the buttress to, to the application. 
Here are some passages of Scripture that talk about the role of biblical preaching. Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 1 Timothy 4.13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. 2 Timothy 2.2, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Titus 2.1, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now you might say, well, doesn't everybody do this? I mean, come on. I go to church, they read the Bible, he talks a while, we go home. It all feels the same to me. No, everybody does not do this. Expositional preaching is not simply reading a text or referring to a text. It is when the meaning and the points of the Holy, that the Holy Spirit inspired in Scripture form the structure of the meaning and the points that the sermon is making. Allowing the Holy Spirit, in a sense, to be the author of the sermon. And the reason, I, friends, you say, why is that so important? I mean, that guy, he tells great stories. We laugh a lot, and, uh, and, and, and we love it. Or he's got great outlines, and he's got lots of verses in his messages. Isn't that, isn't that what really matters? I will tell you why it matters. Man's words don't have any power. Man's words cannot produce what matters, which is spiritual life. And in the life of a Christian, transformation and sanctification. These are not things that man's ideas and man's stories and man's uh, you know, cute examples and, and all the things that any orator uh, at, any, at any assembly could do. There is a difference between a speech and a sermon. There are many people that are good at giving speeches, and people, uh, he's an amazing orator, and what a way with words, and what a turn of the phrase, and all of this. That is not a sermon. A sermon has the power of God because it is based upon the word of God. This is where the power is, right here. And so the congregation, a biblical congregation, wants to be taught the Bible, and they want to have Hebrews uh, 5, the meat of teaching that allows them to grow. Are you with me? Okay. The Spirit of God illuminates the Word of God. He does not illuminate the words of men. There is a lot of man preaching in churches. A lot of really good man preaching, with the exception that it sends people to hell. So we shouldn't call that good. It is God's word, God's gospel, the glory of Christ, the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the fact that we are sinners, these doctrines that are grounded in and, and are the themes of the entire Bible that as the expositor is preaching the word just come up over and over and over again. This is what deepens the church and matures Christians. This is what I felt in my soul. How did, well, Steve, where did you come across this thought? It's kind of an interesting one. Here's where. I grew up going to church, and I have heard many fine men preach and, and such, but it wasn't until 
I went to College Park Church, and I was on staff there that I heard what I would call rigorous doctrinal expositional preaching. And I would sit there, and I would listen to Kimber as he agonized over words in the text, you know, and outlines, and look at this, and the organization of this, which many people would say, oh, that's so laborious. I just, give me three truths or something. No, he wanted the word of God to be communicated. And as he did that, I felt inside of my heart, and some weeks more than others, okay, but Overall, I felt in my heart this sense of, and I'm just going to call it a burning, because that's what the disciples called it when Jesus on the Emmaus Road talked to them and exposited himself out of the Old Testament scriptures. They said, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened God's word to us? God's word, it does something inside. And this is the mystery and the marvel of preaching on how God uses his word, which is proclaimed through a fallen, sinful human being to the congregation in a way that the Spirit takes that word and gives understanding in the, heart, in the mind and then drives application down into the heart. And when that kind of, what I'm calling feeding, as I am eating the sermon... The Holy Spirit grows the Christian and grows the church. And that is a church that is built upon not a man, but upon God and his word. So what kind of church do we want to be, Bethel? A hungry church that has an appetite and you can develop appetites. Have you noticed this? If you grew up in the carnival and all you knew was, uh, and now I can't think of what it's called. <laughs> I heard corn dog, but probably about anything that you would buy at a carnival. If all you knew was, what's the pink stuff you put in your cotton candy? Yeah. If all you knew was cotton candy, you would think, this is, boy, this is really, really uh, nourishing, this cotton candy, right? And there are many people, I think, many Christians, who all they've ever known is cotton candy. They've never tasted doctrinal, expositional steak. And I'm not saying we have steak here. A lot of mine, frankly, are burned hamburgers. But we try, we try to have meat at every meal so that the church can be built up. The word of God. This is what the reformers captured and, and brought about the Reformation, the sola scriptura, scripture alone, and God's people so enthralled with knowing the word, so excited to have the word translated into their own language, something we take so for granted now. Sola scriptura. Listen to Psalm 19. The psalmist describing God's word and uh, the longing for it. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. 
sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. The kitchen is for eating, and the meal the church eats there is the word of God, proclaimed and applied. Now, I would add this, since we're on this point. One of the core expectations that a church should have for all of its shepherds, all of its pastors, would be that they would be men of the word and ministers of the word. And I would say the senior pastor in particular rightly has the expectation that his ministry will primarily be a ministry of the word. And that includes the the sermon, the proclamation uh, ministry, but also counseling and shepherding and pastoral care, where there is a sense that his ministry is built upon and based upon uh, the word of God. Would that the senior pastor of this church would always be, for the hundreds of years that, Lord willing, we will have here, men of the book, men who preach and teach the word of God unapologetically, that the church can be strong. And you can pray for me in that regard. All right, so what is, uh, what is the food? The food is the word of God. Uh, how is the meal served? It is served through the sermon and the proclamation of God's word. Now, finish this phrase for me. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. We have a lot of horses here. Let's talk about eating. Let's talk about eating a sermon, which I'm calling a listening, learning, and applying congregation. Notice Nehemiah 8.12. We get to kind of the end of this little section, and it says this. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing. What was the source of their joy? Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. They were rejoicing because they understood God's word. And it produced then this great joy in them. Now I take this to mean that they, the understanding that they had was not the kind of understanding that people have when, when the, 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 the word goes in this ear, and if you were to watch carefully, it would, it would come out this ear. I heard the, did you listen to the sermon? Oh, I listened to the sermon. I did. I was there. I stayed awake the entire time. I, I heard the sermon. I take this to mean, rather, that the sermon went into their ear and into their brain, and there there was understanding. And it made a journey from the brain down to the heart. And once it got to the heart, it got excited and passionate and contrite and humble And there it produced the good fruits that God's word produces when it goes through that journey and down to the heart. That's where the joy came from. They understood the words and they were eager to apply them. Now, I would say this. You know, sometimes I've noticed that when we do like uh, baby dedications, and you have all these family that come in from town, and they think, oh, we got to get there early, and we got to sit in the front row because we got to have a good angle for the pictures. 
So here's Aunt So-and-So and Uncle Louie and cousins uh, uh, Tom, Frank, and John, and you know, all these family members, and, and, and in, in they come, you know, and they walk in, and you can tell that they're already uncomfortable because it's a church. They don't, they're not comfortable going to a church, but, you know, for the cute little niece that's been born, we'll suffer through a service, and they sit down right here in front of me, and they smile during the baby dedication, and then I have them for 45 minutes or so during the sermon. And I can see the look of terror on their face. And even as I'm talking, it is so clear they don't get it. They don't want to get it. They can't wait till this is done. I try sometimes to look them in the eye, like I'm trying to get their eye, where they know that I know that they're not listening, you know. <laughs> why don't they, why, why is there this disconnect? Here's why. To understand a sermon truly requires the Holy Spirit. And that is why an appetite for God's word is a fruit of regeneration in the life of the Christian. Before you're a Christian, who gives a rip? This is just a bunch of words. It doesn't matter, right? And isn't it interesting that one of the things that often happens when somebody becomes a Christian is they'll read through the Bible in like a week, right? They can't get enough of it. All of a sudden, there's an interest, and a, their appetite has changed, hasn't it? And now, they, they want to hear God's Word. We've seen it around here. People become a Christian, and suddenly, they're podcasting every like radio preacher they can find. They're buying books on theology. They're you know, front row in the sermon. They're taking notes. They, they suddenly want to hear God's Word proclaimed. That is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes to the Corinthians that without the Spirit, the natural man cannot understand spiritual things, for they are spiritually uh, discerned. And so I would say then to our church, and to say to you, one indication that you have the Holy Spirit is that you want, you want, you want to know what God has to say. You want to know God. We don't worship the Bible. We don't worship the Bible. It is a holy book to us. It is sacred to us. But we don't worship it. We worship the God of the Bible. And a means to knowing him is what he has told us about himself. And that is found in Holy Scripture. So you can have a great meal. You can have it presented in front of you. And it can still do you no good whatsoever. Because in order for that food that is in front of you to do you good, what do you have to do? You have to take your fork, plunge it into the filet mignon, and bring it to your mouth. And now, is everybody familiar with what happens next? You have to place it in your mouth and chew it. And as you chew it, you're anticipating the moment when you will swallow it. Am I on solid ground? Is anybody confused here? I'm thinking this is very practical. We can all relate to this, right? We do it every single day we love to eat. It's a very good analogy, I think, for a sermon. Because in a sermon, there is a kind of spiritual food that is being laid out before, you, before us. And we can say, well, isn't it great that we have fine sermons? No. Sermons are not an end. They are a means to an end. The goal of the sermon is for that truth to make its way into my heart and into my mind. 
And for that to happen, the church can't do it. We can't turn the volume up all of a sudden so you just like, it's deafening to you. This is something the individual Christian, namely you, have to do. You have to eat the sermon. Chew it. Savor it. Swallow it. Be nourished by it. Back the picture, I think, is actually somewhat humorous, if you can see it with me. Imagine a table surrounded by kids who haven't eaten all day. And the meal is presented to them on covered plates. And they just can't wait. And the first plate is lifted up, and there is a luscious bowl of peas. And in the next plate is lifted up, and here is just all kinds of robust asparagus. And in the middle plate is lifted up something, and, and they don't even know what it is, but it looks scary to them. And what happens with these kids? What they really need, I mean, think of the nutrients that are in front of them. Think of the nourishment that's in front of them. But that child would crinkle their nose and go, can I have a cookie, right? What they need is right in front of them. What they may naturally want is something that is not good for them. And our hearts are that way as well. To listen to a sermon and to eat a sermon at times requires us to eat something that we don't like. There are passages of Scripture that are more meat and potato kind of passages. There are passages that are peas and asparagus. There are texts of God's words that are salad uh, uh, and dressing. And there are some uh, that are uh, ice cream sundaes. But to be a godly Christian is to eat what's put before us and to realize that if God has said it, it's good for me. We need to eat. We need to eat our vegetables. Now, towards the goal of us being a church that knows how to eat a sermon, I give you these, the following advice. How to eat a sermon. Number one, you have to bring your eating utensils with you. Did you bring your... Uh, did you bring your utensils with you tonight? You're well, what are you talking about? My spoon's at home, and I don't see a fork anywhere. Here's what I'm talking about. How about a Bible? How about a Bible to start with? And you say, well, why would I need to bring a Bible? When you went to math class, what book did you bring with you? You brought your math book. When you went to geography class, what book did you bring with you? You brought your geography book with you. When you go to a biblical preaching and teaching church, what book should you bring with you? I would say a Bible. If you're going to a church where the Bible is taught, you probably ought to bring a Bible. Now, if you're going to a church where you don't feel the need to have a Bible, you're going to the wrong church. In fact, that's a good indication, I think, of the health of a church is how many Bibles you see being brought into the place. Now, some of you are like, oh, I got it on my phone. I don't need that Bible. Okay, go digital. That's, that's okay. That's fine. But are you using it right now? Is it on Nehemiah 8? And did you read verse 8 with me? Bring your utensils with you. Further, I would encourage you to do anything that will allow you to maximize the experience to make the most of it. Now, I'm a note taker. If I was you sitting out week after, I'd have a notebook, like my sermon notebook, bring it with me every service, write stuff down, you know, because I find when I write things out, 
It helps me to digest it. I kind of get it. I would encourage, I would encourage you to do that. Now you're like, oh, I don't like to write. Okay, well, whatever it is that you do, do that. For some of you, it might mean sitting somewhere different in the auditorium. I like to sit in the back because I can see when people get up and leave. I would suggest to you, uh, that's not a good reason to sit where you sit. I would sit where you think would allow you to make the most of it. Think about it. Come with a heart that is prepared. How many of you prayed before you came in or even when you got here and you sat down? Lord, I'm here for you. I'm here to speak to you praise. And from your word, I want you to speak to me. That my heart might be ready to hear what you have to say as the song, Speak, O Lord. That cry of the heart of the Christian. Whatever it is, I would encourage you to do whatever you can to maximize biblical truth in your hearts. Secondly, savor every dish. Are you getting the food analogy? Savor every dish. All sermons are saying something, okay? All sermons are saying something. Listen for that something. Many sermons, in fact, most sermons, they'll follow a certain kind of organizational outline. Are you listening to pick that up? What was the first thing? What was the second thing? What was the third thing? We try to make it as easy as possible. We have it on the screens generally, so you can go, oh, I wonder what point number two is. Wait, it says two there. I I bet that's it. I'm going to write that down. Point number three, I'm going to write that down. Verses to look up later, I'm I'm going to write that down. I'm I'm listening to the sermon so that I can follow what it is saying. By savor every dish, I mean this. All of God's word is inspired, but not all of the sermon is inspired. I've never preached one sermon in my entire life where every single bit of it was really inspiring and, and all that. We are flawed, and so all sermons are flawed to one degree or another. But I would encourage you to listen to a sermon and try to view all of it as a gift from God to you. And to savor what you can out of every uh, point in the, in the message. So swallow your peas is what I'm saying. You're like, oh, get off this point. This is a pea point for you then, okay? It's broccoli. Swallow your broccoli. There is something that God has for you in it. And we're a church, by the way. We don't skip the hard passages. We don't just, you know... Uh, do the things that make you feel good, we're going to do the warning passages in Hebrews, for example. We're taking the tough ones on. We're going to do the whole matter of uh, spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. We're going to take that thing on. We're not just skipping around so that everybody feels good. We want to know what God's word has to say. I would encourage you to listen to sermons as if your life depended on it. I oftentimes think of this when I have a flight somewhere, and, and, and you probably know when you, when you get on a flight, you get on the plane, and they get everybody on there. As they're taxiing to take off, they go through the little spiel, right, where they, they say uh, something like this, you know, located above your uh, seats, there is a uh, oxygen mask that will fall down. And as they're doing that, there is then this flight attendant who is demonstrating with the cord and the yellow mask, you know, what to do if suddenly there is no oxygen to breathe, which would be a very dramatic moment, wouldn't it? Or in, ca- you know, in case of a water landing, 
your seat cushion will serve as a flotation device. And uh, you think, wow, that somehow this thing, but I'm going to have to pull this out somehow. And I wonder what the mechanism is on that. And they're maybe demonstrating that as well. If you've been on a flight, then you know what I'm talking about. As they're describing how to save your life, nobody's listening. <laughs> right? Businessman over here reading the Wall Street Journal. Teenager over here playing on her computer, iPad, or whatever which should be shut off by the time the plane takes off. Uh, people chit-chatting. Nobody's listening. Why? Because nobody thinks that I'm, I'm really ever going to need this. And it seems to me there are many people that listen to sermons the same way. Really, we don't care. I'm here, he's saying things, maybe interesting, can't wait to get out of here. There's no sense of urgency. And yet the Bible says that the sermon and the proclamation of God's word and the gift of teaching and that role within the congregation is part of how God keeps us saved. It is a means by which God allows the church to remain true to doctrine, the one gospel. It is a way by which we understand our minds are renewed and we look at the world this way so that we can go out in the world and make it that week. In a sense, your spiritual life does depend upon the hearing and the doing of the Word of God. Now you say, oh, Pastor Steve, you're overstating that. You're overstating your own importance. We can miss a sermon, it doesn't matter. You know what? You can miss a sermon, just like you can miss a meal. But you begin missing a lot of meals, and then you got a problem, right? Savor every dish. Finally, lick the plate and take a doggy bag. I'm making this as simple as I can, okay? Lick the plate. What I mean by this is try to get out of it every molecule, molecule that you can. If you lick a plate, if you've had a really good meal or a piece of pie or something, and you're like, ah, ah, ah that means that you are, you are trying to get every little bit of that food that you can. And I would suggest that we ought to be Christians who listen to God's word in a similar way, where we are, we're, we're licking that sermon and we're trying to get every spiritual truth out of it that I can. Why? Because I want to know God and I want to obey him and I want to understand his will in my life. And I want the Holy Spirit to do its thing inside of me and sanctify and grow me. And every word in this book is inspired by God and is profitable. And when we get that now, we don't just sort of cherry pick the things that we want to listen to or apply. We want to lick the plate. So lick the plate. Consider all of it. And I would say take a doggy bag. When you go to a place and there's, there's more food than you can eat, you get a doggy bag, right? Take a doggy bag with you. Take it home. Meditate on it. Listen to the sermon. Podcast it. Talk to friends about it. And let's be learners of God's word. And let's become theologians who love God and enjoy God in everything. That's the kitchen. Let's lick the plate. And let's look for a doggy bag. We're going to do that right now. So on the screen, 
is an outline of the sermon tonight. And I would like for you to lick the plate and look for the doggy bag. And then I'm going to conclude the service.